If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Basically I'm Laughing because I don't know why I'm laughing because I'm recording this and I don't really know what I'm saying. Oh yes, I do. I'm introducing you to this week's episode which is a very, very interesting one with Dr. Harry Barry. We had him on last time, you guys all loved it and we have him on again talking about social anxiety. But before I go to Harry, I want to tell you about his book at the top of the episode. It's called Embracing Change. It's brilliant. I've read it. I read it. Uh, I read a proof copy and uh, gave it a shining endorsement, which is printed on the inside. I think you should buy it. I think you should read it. You're going to get a lot from it. The great thing about Harry's books is that there are like actual exercises and tips and tricks in it. So it's not just knowledge and information you're getting. You're getting useful tools. So that's Embracing Change by Harry Barry, published by Hachette, and it is out now. Harry, it seems to me that like as we reopen, there's kind of two cohorts of people to use an overused term. Uh, one is a group of people who wouldn't usually identify as being anxious socially, but now find themselves a little bit worried about going back to work, how they're going to greet people, what's going to happen. And then this other cohort of people who have in the past before any pandemic found themselves struggling in social situations to make talk with people, to you know, find social situations very awkward and very scary. And those people who may have been sort of settling into the lockdown and and not having those pressures on them, now finding themselves with all of that spotlight back on them. Yeah, I think you're so right, Steph. There are there are definitely two two major groups of uh, of people who are involved in what we would call social anxiety. And um, I think we we have to distinguish though between what would be normal uh, social anxiety which all of us are going to feel back when, you know, the way we have to go back into meeting each other for the first time, maybe, and maybe in some cases, maybe 12 months, 18 months um, for a very long period of time. And that can be meeting both friends. It can be uh, particularly uh, an issue for people going back into large offices. Uh, and I know a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, work, uh, work colleagues or work people have said to me that they struggle uh, with this, the idea of going back in. Why? Because they just have got out of the whole touch. You know, it's so long since we've had to shake hands with somebody, to give somebody a hug, to talk to somebody in a normal kind of way. To, you know, to, to all the little little things that we do, we stop at the, at the you know, having a cup of coffee or at the water, water container, whatever, like that, to have a little chat. And all those little chats are something we've got completely out of touch of. Mm-hmm. And there'll be another group of people who will still be, even if they're vaccinated, or partially vaccinated, will still feel a little bit uneasy going back into the workplace for fear that uh, somebody will get too close to them and that they might get uh, they might get pick up the virus. Uh, and that's I know a concern for 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 very many people. 
And I think it's important we distinguish those two, two, two groups, that the first group, for example, will be just concerned about uh, the normal social interactions that we that that, that we're, we're also used to. The second group is more a traditional phobia. That's more where they're concerned if they get too close to somebody that the danger is that they might pick up they might pick up a virus, and they may even get very physically anxious. And I think if they get physically anxious, that'll make it even harder for them to come into work. So really important that we might deal with that group maybe another time when we're dealing with phobias in general. Okay. But so just if, if if we have a have a a, a, a a few quick words just for those who are uh, worried about going into a social situation, and I think the first thing I would say to them is, look, everybody who goes back to a social situation of any type, we're all in the same boat. So it's a really important statement. It's the situation which was abnormal, not us. So we normalise ourselves. We say it's okay to feel physically anxious and to be a little bit worried uh, and a little bit embarrassed going back in. Uh, and don't be afraid to drop the hand and say, look, I'm sure you're finding this as difficult as I am because immediately you're normalizing it. You're saying, look, we're all in the same boat. And of course, that's hugely helpful for other people. So I think that empathetic approach will go a long, long way. And then begin and just have, you know, have little chats about normal things. You know, how did you get on during the the period of time, how did your family get on? And bit by bit, you'll notice that you'll just creep back in. It's a little bit like the kids coming back, particularly the, uh, um, the second level kids going back after a long summer's holidays. Yeah. And they all feel slightly uneasy when they come back. But within a, you know, a couple of days, they're busy yapping away to each other as if they were never gone. Yeah. And so it's just about like giving yourself that, acknowledging that, OK, everyone's in the same boat, even though my anxiety makes me feel like everyone else is super looking forward to getting out of lockdown and ha- has been practicing their social situations this whole time. That's a lie. That, that's that's a, not that, true. That's, a, that's nonsense. And everyone is in the same situation yeah. and we're all a bit nervous, but we'll get there. Yeah, but we'll get there. And just be patient with, with yourself, most of all, and be patient with other people. And bit by bit, you'll find that will slowly recur- return to normal. But the second group, is the group that I'd really like to focus in on today because I'm sure there's quite a few of your listeners, Stephanie, who may struggle with what we call real social anxiety. And social anxiety is where we get really, really anxious and embarrassed when we are faced with going into uh, uh, situations where we have to interact with other people. And some simple examples of this might be, it might be going down, it might be going down to local pub to meet people. It might be going to a party. It might be meeting people down in the, in the cafe at work. It might be meet, meeting a group of your friends or strangers in different situations. And as gradually time, as time moves on and we move, we open everything up and we all get back to what we call routine, normal social interactions. That is unfortunately where for many, many people with social anxiety, their, their real nightmare begins. And that's because what many of I the- have to say, like I I don't go to weddings, I don't go to parties, I don't meet groups of people. Like I go for one-on-one lunches with my friends, even when it's a bunch of my friends, I don't like being in groups of people. If I'm, if I have to go to a work event, unless I'm speaking at it, like I've been, you know, my books or my, or my TV show have been nominated for awards. I don't go to the award ceremonies. I cannot be in social situations where people are going to try and make small talk with me. It's just 
crippling. And a lot of people don't understand that. They say like, oh, but I've seen you on TV or I see you on radio. That's fine. I'm, I have a job there. I'm performing. That is a character that I put on and I can do that and it depletes me, but I can go home and I'm safe. But I just don't understand how people can thrive in social situations. It terrifies me. Well, I think I'm I'm absolutely delighted, Steph, because I think we should be able to to, to give you a, a lot of insight into that area today. So, what I would often say to a person is, let's 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 start with the idea we talked about at the last day of these irrational beliefs, mm-hmm. these ways of thinking about the world that are not, are not very helpful, and the two big emotions that are relevant to social anxiety are anxiety and shame. These are the two cardinal emotions that are embarrassed. Shame and embarrassment, by the way, are the same thing in terms of CBT language. So uh, so behind those um, emotions are these irrational beliefs. Uh, and we're going to have a little look at them now at the moment. So a lovely way of, of approaching this. Um, I'm going to go through exactly what I would do with somebody who came to me with social anxiety. And what I would commonly do, Steph, is I would start with the assumption of that it's a normal routine. Let's face it, let's suppose you were going to a wedding or going to a work meet or all the things that you talked about, any of those situations. So let's let's take a typical example that uh, assuming everything was back to normal and you were going to a party and a lot of your friends were going to be there and a lot of strangers would be there. And this for, uh, for many people with social anxiety is an absolute nightmare because let's see what actually happens. Well, the closer they would get to the party, the more they would start to catastrophize about how terrible it's going to be and how anxious they're going to get. And if if they went into the party, by the time they got in, they'd be pumping out loads of adrenaline from their, from their amygdala and they would basically be getting uh, shaking and sweating and blushing and fidgeting and all these kind of classical symptoms that we get in social anxiety. So suppose you get closer to the party and you're, you're, you're having your adrenaline rush and you're having all these physical symptoms. Let's see what goes on in your head when you go into the party. So if I were to say to you, what dangers are you associating with going into the party? The average person will say, well, people will start to see something about me. And what will they see? They'll see that I'm anxious. And what is it about you that you think they will see that would make them believe that you were anxious? And of course, the, the, the normal uh, comment back to that is people will see that I'm fidgety, that I'm uneasy, that I might be sweating a bit, that I might be a bit shaky, that I might be blushing. And they will, they will then, um, they, will, they will begin to see all these things. And, in, and then you say, well, why would it bother if you saw those things? And the answer back to that is, well, because they would then start judging me or assuming that I'm weak or that I'm not good socially and maybe somebody to be avoided. And what else do you think that they might notice at the party? Well, they'd notice that I was very poor at conversation, that I wasn't very good at um, breaking into conversations, that I never seemed to know what to say in conversations. I feel very uncomfortable in them. And why would that bother you? Because once again, people would automatically start to judge me as in some way being uh, weaker or inferior. And the word that girls use all the time, I remember I had 13 girls in a row, Steph, with this 13 girls in a row, use the word weird. They'll think I'm weird. They'll think there's something different about me. And then my demand, of course, is I mustn't be exposed to that situation. Uh, and I, I also have to accept the negative judgment of other people. So that's why I'm feeling ashamed. 
So then I feel anxious and ashamed. And then my behavior is what really causes all the problem. So here's a classical series of behaviors for the person with social anxiety. The commonest one is to do exactly what you talked about, Steph, which is to avoid. So if I can find some way of not going, I won't go. But there will be some situations where I have to go. And then the dreaded um, behavioral patterns begin. And the typical one would be starting with what we call a rehearsal. So before I ever get to the event at all, I'm busy checking myself in the mirror. Am I sweating? Am I blushing? Do I look confident? Maybe practicing in my head. What topics of conversation could I could I bring up that people would think people might find interesting? Because remember, another key thing in social anxiety, people believe that they're boring, which is part of the reason that they they that, that, that they're ashamed to go to these parties. And then they get to the party, and some the girls might go to the restroom to check out they're blushing or sweating. The guys might go to the to, to the bar to get some alcohol to try and calm down the anxiety feelings. They'll often stay at the edge of groups. They won't get into conversations. If they do get into conversations, uh, what will happen is they'll be busy rehearsing in their head all the time. What are they going to say that, that might make them look stupid? They'll be monitoring people's faces. How do I come across? You know, all this serious idea. And then coming home and doing the dreaded post-mortem. I know they all thought that I was weak. I know they all thought it was poor, poor conversation. I know they all thought I was weird. So you can imagine, Steph, if every time you wanted to go to a party or a do or meet friends, that all of this was going on in your head. Yeah, because it is. Um, but I just wonder about, like, because I'm identifying with some of what you're saying, but some other parts of what you're saying, I'm saying... Like, I don't really, it's not that I'm afraid people will see me shaking or see me sweating. It's just that I don't, I don't know how to talk about, I don't do, I don't know how to do small talk and I don't particularly want to do it. Like, I don't want to be there. Okay, well, let's start with the assumption, Steph, that um, is it a good, is it good for us to be very poor socially or is it a, is it not a skill that we would uh, greatly uh, greatly love to have. Whether you decide to use it or not is different, but you have yeah. to learn how to become comfortable in social situations. So for me, I've had people whose lives are hell, hell on earth, because they dread social situations for the very reasons. Now, I think it's important, Steph, that there are two groups of people. One group will worry more about the physical symptoms, and that's a very substantial group of people, by the way. Yeah. Don't, don't underestimate the number of people who really, really dread that people will see them physically anxious. And the second group are the, are the group that are simply not good at conversation. And they don't, they've never really learned skills to deal with conversation. So what I do uh, when I'm helping somebody with social anxiety, the, I give them two cardinal rules. Okay. Now, these cardinal rules uh, are, are relevant to you, even though you don't realize it. And the first rule is that social anxiety is about perception versus reality. Mm-hmm. So in other words, for many, many people with social anxiety, they have a perception as to what happens in social situations. And of course, the reality is completely different. So one of my jobs is to teach them uh, using exercises that that, re- that is the situation, that social anxiety is about their perceptions of what's going on in their head rather than what actually happens in real life. And the second one is that people are self-obsessed. I love this one. Yeah. Everybody is self-obsessed. So we think people are thinking about us more than they actually are. Exactly. So we have this false perception of what other people actually uh, think and do. 
And this is the key to social anxiety. So what I would do is I, I work on both areas because these are the two key areas. And to give you an, an example, um, uh, Steph, you should be able to clear your social anxiety within three months uh, for life. Okay. How? If you're, if you're prepared to put the work in. Now, the, the problem for, for some people is they're not prepared to put the work in. But for those who have put the work in, I would rarely see somebody more than three times to get rid of their social anxiety if they do what I asked them to do. So here's how I would work on it. We start with the assumption that uh, people believe that you can see the physical signs of anxiety. So this is actually what's going on in the mind of the person. It's almost as if when they come into the social situation, they believe they've got a high-vis jacket on. Do you know the high-vis jacket yeah. we all use out in the roads? Yeah. And it's like as if they believe that everybody is suddenly, is, their attention is going to be drawn straight to them. And they're going to, out nearly comes the binoculars and the notebook. And I think I see a little bit of sweating there. I think I see a bit of shaking there. Oh, that person's a bit fidgety. They're staying at the edge of groups a little bit like that, you know what I mean? And, oh God, they must be very socially anxious people. God, I better avoid them. So that's the perception that's going on in the mind of the person with social anxiety. So what's the reality? Well, the reality, of course, is that um, nobody sees the physical signs of anxiety. In fact, in general, people see absolutely nothing. Why? Because they're completely self-obsessed. Mm -hmm. So if you were to go into an average party, do you seriously believe that they've all collected there, especially to see Steph arriving in or yeah. somebody else like Steph arriving in to take notes on all the little things they're going to see uh, and, and, and start making judgments of them. So in real life, this doesn't simply happen at all. So I give people a great exercise. It's called the anxiety inspector exercise. And this is where you have to go into a social situation and you have to travel around the social situation and you have to find me the anxious people. Okay. How? By just looking at them? And it's a great exercise because you have to, you have to be able to come back to me to say that you were able to detail the physical symptoms that you saw that made, that made you sure that they were anxious. And this might seem like a very simple exercise to do. And remember, something like 5-7% of, of everybody in a social situation is, it has some form of social anxiety. So very, very common. So you should be falling over these people. But it's just the sense that you, is it that you won't notice? It's not as evident as you think it is. You no, know, the reality is that it's very hard to see the physical signs of anxiety because there are actually mostly internal feelings that we have, but other people generally don't see them. And secondly, and this is the really crucial part, people are completely self-obsessed. People are you know, more interested in uh, assessing you and whether you're socially anxious or have physical symptoms or but anything about you. <laughs> in fact, they're so self-obsessed that they're usually only interested in what's going on in their own little world at that moment in time. But I kind of get that. I understand that. The people are self-obsessed. Nobody cares you about get me. It. But you then it's why, it, why do I bother? Why am I bothering going to this social event? Like, right. everyone's yeah, no, but no, you, that, That's a different matter altogether. We, that brings us back to the world of frustration, which I, I'm hearing a lot in your voice. I did that coin but thing I, that you told me to do. I, I, I'm, I'm talking here. I'm talking to the people out there, Steph, and they are the vast majority of people. Yeah. And they're the ones who are crying out to be good socially, dying to be good socially. I, I remember a, a lovely example of this. A young boy came to him in his mid-20s, uh, couldn't, couldn't meet a girl because he was so socially anxious. Uh, uh, and within, within three months, 
uh, he was going out with somebody and he was completely back to okay. And, and all he incredible. wanted to do was have a normal social uh, life and be able to talk to people in a normal way. So you can turn this around massively quickly if you want to do it. Yes. Now, remember, so, that, that that's the practical point. If you don't want to do it, Steph, then the reasons for that are very different. Are totally different. And I understand. So that's incredible that. So if you are, if you're someone who desperately wants to go to the party, but you feel like you're sweating and you're uncomfortable and everyone's going to notice that this exercise of actually go to the party and find other people who you think are giving are, are off the signals that you give off. And you'll find that actually they're not doing that because it's not as blatant as Obvious, you feel like as you it think. is. Yes. Okay. And, well, that's and, and secondly, um, not only that, uh, Steph, but um, if I were if I were to ask you, what were the last five people you met and were talking to wearing? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't notice at all. No. So if you can't even notice what they were wearing and yeah. remember that, what chance do you think you have of noticing anything else? And, and the reason for that is that we just were generally very poor observationists. Why? Because we're self-obsessed. We're off in our own little worlds. Remember that the average person who goes out on a Friday night to a party has no more interest in uh, in looking around to find anxious people, for example. They're interested in going down, having a bit of fun, chatting about maybe uh, what's going on in the office or at home or who's winning the match or whatever. So that's the real. And I, I do another exercise called supermarket exercise where I send people to a supermarket. And this, believe it or not, Steph, will have grown men uh, maybe taking weeks to do it sometimes, yeah. where you have to, you, know, you would you would find it laughable, but this exercise, believe it or not, gets rid of social anxiety for lots of people. Um, it's where you they have to go to a supermarket, put a, a single item into a large basket or a large um, trolley, trundle around the supermarket for five minutes, not get anything else, go to the busiest queue you can find, trundle the whole way up, uh, still with your single thing in the trolley and pay for it in small change. Now you would you would feel uh, that that you know that might bother you, but that would actually really bother lots of people who think, oh God, everybody will be looking at me, everybody will be judging me, everybody will think, who's this weirdo? But in reality, I get them to be of the observers, where they suddenly begin to realise, hey, you know, people don't even notice I'm here. As one lady put it beautifully, I, uh, she did it six times, and she said she stood at the back of the supermarket one day. And she was looking down, she was feeling a bit down. And I said, well, why are you feeling a bit down? She said, because I never realized how unimportant I was. Yeah. <laughs> but if it gives you the freedom to socialize, then then it's quite, yes. then it's quite freeing. So now she realized she'll never worry again. She said she'll never again worry about, uh, because she now realized that she, uh, that she gets rid of her social anxiety when she realizes how un- unimportant she is in real life. So when you actually put this into practice, because you can see, you can understand this cognitively, uh, Steph. Yeah. But you had to put this re- into reality. And there'll be loads of people out there if they would only go and do these exercises and try and gain these insights, the changes in their life would be massive. And then we get to the second uh, key key area. It's three really parts of social anxiety. Second key area is conversation. Uh, now, lots and lots of people, do you do you think you're a boring person, Steph? Um, not particularly, no. But suppose I told you that many people with social anxiety think they're boring. And remember we talked about this the last time when we talked about unconditional self-acceptance? Yeah. That a person can't be boring because that's a form of self-raising, which is not allowed. But on the other hand, a topic of conversation can be boring. So what's so what kind of, kind of topics do you think people find interesting? 
I think people find, again, this is my bias. I think people find sport interesting, which I can't relate to. I think people find, but people find themselves interesting. So if you ask questions. Uh, No, no, you've got it. You see, the real problem with people who are struggling with conversation and social anxiety is they're busy trying to find a topic that they believe the other person will find interesting. But of course, there's only one topic that people love to talk about. Themselves. Themselves. (laughs) (laughs) They find the topic endlessly fascinating. We can talk about ourselves all day long. You know, the famous statement, if we want to be truly miserable, all we have to do is give ourselves our total undivided attention. Um, So we love talking about ourselves. So here's what I uh, would have got so many countless people who have got rid of their social anxiety. Uh, to do. They have for a three-month period with every person they meet. That's everybody's uh, staff, not just waiting until you find yourself in a social situation, but you do this with every solitary person you meet. What you do is, if if you know the person, you ask them about something you know they're interested in. It might be sport, it might be politics, it might be films, it might be their family, but you know this person loves to talk about this area. And then you ask them a question and based on their reply, you ask another question. And based on that reply, you ask another question and so on. The the key to this, of course, is that you must show intense interest in their replies. And that's where everybody comes a cropper because it's 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 people are very, very um, instinctively attached to somebody who is clearly showing interest by their eye contact, by their face, um, facial expressions, by their hand movements, that they're really into the, whatever the person is discussing. So it's, it's actually a way of teaching yourself to really engage properly with other people's uh, conversation. And by getting them to talk about subjects they really love talking about, they'll chat away for half an hour. I'll tell you a very funny story at the end of this. Now, what about people who are strangers? Because this is a huge issue for many people. Well, there are three questions that are real Irish questions, by the way, that will get you out of almost any social situation. And by the way, I use these myself all the time because I'm sometimes fired into, as part of my work, into having to meet groups of people, uh, many of whom I don't know. So I will always ask one of the following three questions. First question is, where are you from? What an Irish question. And they they might say, well, the answer might be, I come from Dublin. And really, what brought you all the way from uh, or, or say I might have come from Galway so what brings you all the way from Galway to Dublin and are your family living in Galway and do you like Dublin versus Galway and you have question after question after question and eventually the person will be chatting away for five to ten minutes but that's my Harry to, if I was in a conversation with you I'd be like oh my god he keeps asking me questions I can't get away from him oh, no but no but the the, the, the the reason for this is um, you, you know this is a skill Okay. You know, yeah, this isn't something that, you know, you, you have to learn. If you got into the car, you don't just get a driving lesson and then suddenly learn yes. to drive. Slowly, slowly. You have to practice this over months, do you know what I mean, until you get very comfortable. The second question is, well, what do you do? And the person might say, well, I'm into, I'm into media, I'm into films, I'm into, um, uh, you know, I'm insurance, I'm whatever. and whatever the person opens up, you then say, well, that sounds very interesting. Tell me about it. And off they go. And all you have to do is keep showing intense interest. Now, you're not having to find a topic that they find uh, interesting or not, because they love talking about themselves. And of course, the last one is, we're back to square one again, what do you do in your spare time? 
oh, well, I love films. Oh, really? What, what, how did you get into films? And what kind of films do you watch? And this is a classic one, by the way, to get a date. Is there any good films on at the moment? And of course, uh, it, it, it up comes a certain film. Would you be interested in going? And now you have a date. Do you know what I mean? So in other words, there, there are um, numerous, uh, almost unlimited ways of reaching into, into people. So the secret in social situations is to stop all the, or with social anxiety, to stop all the unhealthy behaviours. Because you don't any longer, if you avoid, by the way, uh, if you keep avoiding something, then you, you eventually your brain begins to associate that with danger. So you get increasingly anxious. So the more you avoid, the more anxious you get. So the one thing you have to do is you have to uh, up the hand and into every social situation you can get your hands on to practice exactly what I'm asking you to do. And that's what I get people to do. Because after a while, they begin to realize, hey, that nobody really knows I'm in the bloom place as to why am I getting more, why am I anxious, for example, um, uh, and, and the reason is that, you know, I had believed up to this that people would be watching me and observing me and judging me and making assumptions about me. And I now realize that none of this is happening at all. So why, why? So that immediately gets rid of a lot of my anxiety. And if I could then become very skilled at conversation and that, that believe it or not, uh, uh, Steph, that's becoming an increasing issue because our young people, particularly many of our young people who, who work very much through social media all the time, have, are beginning to lose these old-fashioned conversational skills, which uh, which our which our um, parents and, and grandparents had. They were much better at. They were much better at these kind of skills, and we have to a certain extent to, to relearn them. So, uh, believe it or not, uh, three months of practicing those kind of exercises um, will go a long, long way towards resolving. Uh, and they're they're done in some of my books, emotional resilience, and they're done in anxiety and panic. And they're, to be honest with you, it's it's one of the great joys of my life, Steph, to take somebody who's desperately anxious to to learn how to deal with social anxiety, and to see them after maybe eight to ten weeks, whizzing around the place, social anxiety gone, no longer worried about it. Do you know what I mean? So what a wonderful place to to be. The second, the second uh, type of social anxiety that um, I would also come across, and again, there will be people out there who will be struggling with this one, uh, is what we call social performance anxiety. And that's where I have to give a presentation in front of people or maybe give the, uh, the, the, the father the bride speech or, the, or to maybe give a, uh, to get up in, in public and give a presentation over something. Uh, and that's all very well for some people. Some people, they find it easier to do it at work, but some people absolutely hate doing it at work. And I've actually had people who have uh, not taken uh, promotions, for example, who because they are so concerned that they will end up having to give lots and lots of uh, performance presentations. And of course, here we go again. So what would you think their danger is, Steph? That they, I mean, this one I... I remember a lot at school and being very fascinated by my dear friends who were absolutely calcified in fear at the idea of having to read in front of the class. And then kind of there's always that kind of two shades of people in school, the people who will never shut up reading and never and always want to be in the drama club or whatever. And then the people who are terrified of it. And it's I think it's a fear that like I'll say the wrong word. People will laugh at me. I'll stutter. I'll make a fool of myself. Um people won't be able to hear me people will be bored someone is going to yawn while I'm speaking um, and that sort of there's like a Rolodex of fears that come along with it I think yeah 
Doesn't it sound very like the, the first case of social anxiety we talked about? Yeah. So you can immediately begin to see, actually, the, the, the fears of the persons with performance anxiety are very, very similar. But what they're worried about is that people will see one, one of the two, two following things. The first one is they will see something about me, uh, my quavery voice, yeah. and that I'm a bit shaky, that I, don't, I seem to be kind of losing, uh, losing track of what I'm saying. You know, that there's something about me that suggests that I'm anxious. And why would you be bothered about that? Because they then judge me. Here we go with the judgment. It's all about judgment. It's all about other pe- allowing other people to judge me. Because what will they think? They'll think, that, well, I'm not, I mustn't be very good at my job if I'm, if I'm not even able to give a presentation that I get anxious. Uh, so many, many people then, or even if, even if it wasn't at your job, suppose it was in a public situation, maybe in a wedding or something like that, um, then people will judge me as what's wrong with me. I must be socially very anxious. And um, they will also judge the content of what I'm going to say. So will they, as you say, think I'm boring? Will, they, will, will, will I say it the wrong way? Will I, and the biggest fear of all, the one that causes the greatest problem is, will I have a mind blank? That's what everybody's terrified. Yes, yeah, will yeah. I become so anxious that I literally get a mind blank and forget what I want to say? And there I will be, uh, in my mind, up there in front of everybody, uh, uh, as I say, hanging out uh, and everybody out there trying to judge me and, and all the rest of it. So you can immediately see why people become paralysed. I want to tell you about another podcast on the network that I think you're going to love, particularly people who follow me and listen to me and often ask me, where can I learn about like Irish history because I'm useless at it, but people who I have whetted their appetite for politics and information want to go back to history. This is a podcast called Hedge Radio. It's really slick. It's really well produced. It's gorgeous. And it's got really interesting information. Have a listen. If it's not for you, move on. But I really think that you're going to enjoy it. Do we have to buy hard hats? Have a listen to this. Just to carry my name and address in Michelle. You're not getting an answer to that. Have a listen to this. Head Radio podcast looks at the humble scene in the backward place where no one important ever looks to steal from Patrick Kavanagh. Taking inspiration from the hedge schools of old, the Head Radio podcast brings you stories that you won't hear anywhere else. You need imagination for everything. Have a listen to this. It's someone's reaction to reading a book. Is it as easy to overcome this sort of performance anxiety as it is the social anxiety that you've helped people with before? It is. Great. It is. What do you, what do you think the two rules are again? Uh, find evidence of, like, watch other people doing it and find evidence of their nerves. Well, exactly. So the first one is that social anxiety is about perception versus reality. Do you remember this? Yeah. And the second one is that people are self-obsessed. Okay. So the same rules apply to performance situations. So how much do you think people actually see when somebody's giving a presentation? Well, I know from my experience that I don't, like I'm usually focused on the content of, of the presentation, the message, rather than, than who's delivering it. I probably wouldn't be able to tell you what they're wearing. You know, I watch a lot of TED Talks. But exactly. Yeah. So if you don't, if you can't, if you're not observing what the person is even wearing, uh, never mind seeing whether they're sweating or blushing or fidgety or anything like that. The reality is that uh, I get people to do the, what we call the performance inspector anxiety, where they have to find me all the, 
the, all the anxious people who were performing or giving performances and, and why they were anxious. And also, really important, uh, uh, can they tell me an hour after they listened to somebody what they were wearing? Now, remember that the person in the audience, if you go back into the audience, what do you think is going on in the audience? People are thinking about their dinner. <laughs> They're thinking about exactly. their exactly. weekend plans. So once you begin to realize, here I am sweating my guts out about some of these things, some minor little thing that, uh, that I think that, I, that I, make a little, um, I make a little mistake or I uh, fumble over something or I feel fidgety or, or something like that. The reality is that most people are, are just barely observing you, if they're observing you at all. A lot of the time they're often, what's for dinner? Who'll win the match tonight? Do you know, I, I, I hope we just finish soon because I want to get back to do that job. Uh, or I wonder what we'll pull out for dinner tonight. Do you know what I mean? All the ordinary things that we all do all the time. So the reality then is uh, uh, to take on your thing of the content. What percentage of a presentation will people actually remember? Probably the content of your presentation. I don't know, maybe 60 I would say it's uh, five to ten percent. Oh God! Why do why do we bother? <laughs> if I was to uh, if I was to ask you know people uh, who who listened carefully to one of your presentations an hour later to write down in detail all the uh, elements of your presentation, you would be very dismayed. Oh, <laughs> because I, I am dismayed. Because the reality is that they will barely get the essence of what you were talking about. They will usually only focus in if the piece of that particular presentation actually is of interest to them. They'll switch off for the vast majority of the rest of it. Um, they, they, a very good um, question to ask yourself, the last time you were listening to somebody, how many times did your mind wander off? Um, not three. <laughs> I'd say you're that well, fair just you, Steph. You're 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 way ahead of the rest of us because for the majority of people, their mind keeps wandering off. Do you know what I mean? Like in other words, they listen to a piece, then their mind wanders off, and then they bring their mind to concentration. Well, I guess back. yeah, you're right. Like you, your mind wanders off back to yourself. Like when my mind wanders, yeah. it wanders to what you're saying and how it pertains to me. Then yeah. I might think about myself again a bit more. <laughs> we're yeah, really so self-obsessed. Why? Because we're very self-obsessed. So the reality is that here is me giving a presentation where I'm terrified that people will see all these different things and they will then make judgments of either me or my presentation. The reality is the vast majority of people hardly know you're in the room. They, they're wondering when the presentation will be over. They haven't a clue what you are wearing. They'll barely notice uh, anything about you. If I asked them, well, what was your hairstyle like? Um, you know, what colours were you wearing? You'd be astonished. I had one person... And they would spend two hours with their mom and dad directly in front of them uh, just before they came to see me. And they hadn't a clue what they were wearing. <laughs> yeah, because no one, <laughs> because people don't take, I, I'm now that you've mentioned it, I like I've just recorded another podcast and I'm trying to think, what were they, what were those people wearing? I sat in front of them for an hour. But yeah, well, people are self-obsessed. I mean, I think about what I'm going to wear. You can begin to get an understanding that social anxiety is very much about what's in our heads. It's a very much about false perceptions. And these false perceptions in terms of presentation anxiety usually start at school. 
they're the commonest place where somebody gets mocked or somebody makes a mistake when they stand up to read something and, and they feel very self-conscious afterwards. Or somebody, uh, uh, the really bad one is where somebody criticizes them or somebody laughs. And they, from that moment on, believe that they are, they're going to be the butt of everybody's jokes uh, if, something, if, if, if they're giving a presentation. So they become terrified of giving them. So I, for example, will always get people to introduce some humor into their, always be self-deprecatory. In mm -hmm. other words, uh, uh, when you're given a presentation. In other words, take the pressure off yourself. Normalize it. Uh, everybody down there is a normal Joe Soap like yourself. So you have to bring them in and make them feel that, they're a nor that you are a normal Joe Soap like them. And of course, that makes them very much, you much more comfortable when you're giving your presentation. So I would do all those kind of little tips with people to try and, a system to, to 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 move on. So I think I think in, in, you can see now, for example, why though the lockup has been very very bad for people with social anxiety because they have been able to escape, for example, a lot of the situations, uh, for example, uh, where they will have to interact with people either at work or socially, and where many of them have managed to dodge giving presentations, although some have come to me and having trouble giving them even online, even on Zoom conferences. Um, so the overall uh, message, of course, from today is that you can get rid of social anxiety very quickly out of your life if you're prepared to put the work in. Now, the big question for you uh, we have to ask, Steph, is what is it about the social interaction that's, that's stopping you from doing it? That's the question. Is it frustration rather than anxiety? Um, it's probably a bit of frustration. It's anxiety when I want to do it. So there are situations when I really want to do this. They're rare, but, and and that's when it evades me. And now I'm, I've written, I've been writing down as you're talking and these are the things that I'm going to use in the situations that I want to. Then there are times when it's frustrating because I simply don't want to have to talk to people about nonsense. And that's a different, but you're right. And it feels different in my body too. Right. Well, here's a little bit of advice for you. Uh, if you want to really be a good communicator, you have to learn something very important that everybody, every human being uh, has some areas that you or that you know very little about and that you become a much more enriched person when you learn to accept that, you know, it's good for me to talk to other people about things, even that maybe I don't have technically any real interest in. Why? Because first he is teaching me to become curious about other people and interact with other people. And secondly, um, it, it's actually good for me personally to get to get out of my own way and focus on, on other people. It's better for us, Stephanie. It's healthier for us. It's mentally healthier for us. It's easy to dodge, but it's not good for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That would be my humble opinion. And it's worth a lot. Just before we finish up, I do think that as the as the restrictions lift and we open up again, it's important for me to take the opportunities that are given and, you know, not sort of try to stay in this because, you know, anxiety and frustration or whatever it is, it's a good excuse. You know, it's something that allows me to get out of a lot of things. But sometimes I need to get out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Be curious about other people. Be of service to other people. Be, you know, allow people the opportunity to talk about themselves. Maybe there's a lot of people that haven't had a lot of social contacts. And if I stop thinking about myself and how I can be of use to others, it's a much more easy 
remember, if you went into all these situations with it, you know, I'm going to try and make as many people comfortable uh, being here and chatting to me as possible. Well, then I get out of my own way and I start thinking about other people. And that is so good for my mental health. It gets rid of a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our frustrations, and is very mentally healthy for us. So I think, I think there's a lot of messages and to be, uh, or a lot of maybe lessons to be learned from our little chat today. Do you know what I mean? I think so. Uh, I think in so many areas. I think people um, will get a lot from it. If people want to read more of your writing on this particular subject, what would you recommend they read? I would probably say anxiety and panic and emotion resilience in particular does this area very well. It's done a little bit in self-acceptance as well. Uh, because remember, like we didn't we didn't go into the rating thing today because we did it the, on the, the previous episode. podcast. Yeah. You know. But if, for example, you could remember that all you're doing in, in a, a social situation, instead of rating yourself, you're allowing other people to rate you. And of course, we're not allowed to rate ourselves at all if we want to be truly mentally healthy. So this is the real secret to dealing with anxiety. Lots, lots of, if people could grasp these very simple ideas, it's astonishing how quickly they will become a lot less anxious. Dr. Harry Barry, thank you so much for your wisdom and expertise and support uh, for this podcast and the last one. And I'm sure people will be delighted to hear this and want you on again. Um, thank you so, so much. Oh, an absolute pleasure, Steph. Take care of yourself now. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Basically. I found it fascinating. I hope that you did too. Turns out that social anxiety for me sometimes is frustration. And, you know, I'm okay with that. Um, If you enjoy these podcasts and you'd like to hear more of them, you can get extra bonus material by becoming a Headstuff Podcast member by going to headstuffpodcast.com and joining the community. It's five euro a month or whatever you can. And it goes to support me and the show. And I really appreciate it because, you know, It takes time and energy to do these and uh, it really does help. Your support helps. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara. We are produced by Alan Bennett and we are a member of the Headstuff Podcast Network. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.